Hello and welcome to Cutting In From The Left. I'm your host Tom Wise and I've got with me Luis Antonio Streeter. How are you doing Luis? Hi Tom, uh, looking forward to it again, uh, doing well. That's all good to hear. Right, so I think we should start with the biggest news to come from the weekend and that was of course Norwich City's promotion back to the top table of English football. They suffered a defeat to Bournemouth going down 3-1 thanks to a dodgy refereeing performance. Um, a red card after about 20 minutes and after that Norwich was sort of done but we won't we won't hang on that for too long because I just want this to be a celebration of how good this season's been and as creative director of the podcast I made a point of having this as the first topic they obviously went up over the weekend it was something that was in the pipeline they've been very good this season and, and I see a few memes on the timeline. I see a few memes on Twitter, the, the usual candidates, the lad Bibles of this world, the odds checkers of this world. They're getting ready to, to write their tweets about Norwich being relegated at the end of 2022. And I just wanted to, to make the case that I don't think it'll happen this time. This time, I think they'll be OK. So what do you think is, uh, is different this time in terms of the squad? Or I guess, do you think... There's going to be much improvement in the team, or do you think the current team is good enough to stay up? I think they've definitely they're definitely a lot better than they were uh, even with the last promotion they got at the end of 2019. They let in an extraordinary amount of goals that season for a team that actually got promoted. They let in 57 goals, and that was just one of the worst one of the worst backlines in the league, really. For them to get promoted was that they were sort of having to win games 4-3 and 3-2 and a lot of these sort of results and uh, while I was like very optimistic going up that year I think this time they've tightened up so much that I'm quite hopeful for next season they got they sold uh, Jamal Lewis and Ben Godfrey obviously in the summer uh, Godfrey's obviously gone on to be quite important for Everton I think all, all the Toffees love him up there and that was definitely seen as like a negative, like what are they going to do? How are they going to replace him going into the championship at the start of this season? Um, but they brought in Ben Gibson. If you remember him, he was he was great for yeah. Middlesbrough a few years ago. He went to Burnley. He was They signed him for big money and for some reason he barely played the game for them. I'm not quite sure what went on there, but they managed to get him on loan and that's become permanent now that they've been promoted. And he's been an absolute rock. Like him and Grant Hanley. Grant Hanley, I mean, we've talked about him before at games and how he's, he might not quite be Premier League quality or if he ever was, but he, he looks he looks some player next to Ben Gibson. And they've got a left back who's a Greek international called Yanoulis. And he he's come in in January and he's he's looked really solid too. Unfortunately, he was the lad that got sent off at the weekend, but uh yeah, he's he's been great. But yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to next season. They kept on to, they kept hold of the players that they needed to, whether they can keep hold of them um, past this summer. I'm not sure whether promotion to the Premier League is going to be enough if you've got Bayern Munich chasing you or some of the big clubs in, in Europe chasing you. So we live in hope about people staying, but but yeah, no, I'm 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 quite positive, mate. Yeah, from what I've seen as well, um Wendia had a, a great season as well, didn't he? In terms of his performance, is obviously a really talented player. Yeah, he keep around. He's he's been amazing. Like I'm, I'm surprised he did stay, but he's been really good. I think a lot of people were probably disappointed with his output in the Premier League. Like he, he, he took ages to score his first Premier League goal, and obviously he was sort of caught up in the whole thing of Norwich being absolutely awful after after Project Restart. I don't think they won a game, 
and there was a lot of uh, so-called fans really giving it to Norwich and trying to get rid of Farker and all these kind of things. And, you know, it's really proved that they were right to stick with him the year that they've had this year. I think I think whatever happened with Sheffield United and Chris Wilder, if, if they'd stuck with Chris Wilder, potentially it'd be looking more positive for them next year. And, yeah, it, it's just been such a great season for them. They've got a game tonight, which is six o'clock. So it's as we're recording this, it's just about to kick off. We'll see what happens. But if they beat Watford, they'll win the title. So I'm sure I'll, I'll be giving updates as we go along. Talk a little bit about the two FA Cup semi-finals that we had over the weekend. Uh, I'm not sure how much you saw of either of these two games, but for me, they were two of the most boring FA Cup semi-finals um, I could think of. It was Chelsea beat Man City 1-0 and Leicester beat Southampton 1-0. Team, probably one of Timo Werner's best games for Chelsea. He set up Ziyech early on for a goal that was ruled offside. And then he eventually did get an assist where he squared for ZH later on. Uh, so he, he, he had a good game. Um, and then in the Leicester game, Iheanacho scored as he just can't stop scoring at the minute. But in either game, there wasn't really too many chances. Um, Man City were disappointing. What, what did you make of them? Yeah, I caught uh, a lot more of the, um, of the Leicester-Southampton game than the, uh, the Chelsea City one. So I suppose I think a lot of us were expecting Man City to just go and, and turn Chelsea over. Obviously, a, a pretty solid performance, uh, even if, as you said, not the most entertaining game there. I'm sure they'll be like, delighted to, to get through to the final. Let's go a little bit further into depth on Leicester Southampton. So I think the most interesting spell for me was just after the start of the second half. And Southampton really came out and took the game to Leicester. And there was a spell where they were dominant both before and just after um, Leicester themselves scored for Iheanacho. Um, well, they looked really positive. They were going forward. They are creating quite a few chances um, and nearly managed to score a goal or two. Um, but I think it just shows the difference in class between Leicester and Southampton. I mean, the goal came from um, a really good run from Vardy down the left-hand side. Uh, got it in there for Iheanacho. Just an extinctive finish. He got a little bit lucky with a ricochet. But it just shows when you've got a player like Jamie Vardy, no matter how much Southampton were dominating and on the ball, that one counter-attack, that ball uh, down the channel there, just you know, changed the whole game. I think you know, Southampton as well after that fell off and perhaps lost a bit of um, confidence and motivation. Um, but they can count themselves a little bit unlucky. I think it just shows... I mean, you, you can't beat having good players, really. Um, and just having the player of the quality of Vardy there, it just makes such a difference. Yeah, Vardy's been... He hasn't actually scored, I don't think, since the win against Liverpool back in February, which is it's crazy, isn't it, for someone like him and the record that he's had. But yeah, he totally made that goal, steaming down the left wing and then putting it in for Iheanacho. I guess the other thing to note about this game was fans are allowed back into the grounds. Um, 4,000 people are allowed into Wembley. I think it was people chosen from the local area and key workers and things like that. So in terms of us getting back to a game, that's like a really positive thing. 
it's just a shame. I feel like if you're a Leicester or Southampton fan, I don't know how many live in the local sort of Wembley, North Northwest London area, but there'll be plenty that are a bit gutted to have missed out on, you know, maybe one of their only chances to see their team in an FA Cup semi-final. There did seem to be some Leicester fans from what I could see. There were some pretty exuberant celebrations and I don't know about the Southampton side. But yeah, that was nice to see at least some fans celebrating in the stadium. Uh, as you say, hopefully we can move there. I think it's... um. They're saying for some of the later Premier League matches, they might allow up to 10,000 back in the stadium. So we'll see how, see how that goes. And obviously, hopefully, um, non-league clubs and lower league clubs will be able to get people in, uh, especially kind of the smaller capacity crowds, hopefully be able to just fill out and help them financially as well. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a good sign for the hopes of getting back into football grounds. That means we have a Chelsea-Leicester FA Cup final. Certain people will potentially be saying should we give it to Leicester already as certain clubs are trying to leave the stratosphere of English football but we will get onto that in a bit. Sticking with cup football it was the second Copa del Rey final in two weeks at the weekend. Barcelona against Athletic Bilbao. Athletic Bilbao had obviously been beaten in the last season's game which was a couple of weeks ago which we've covered against their rivals Real Sociedad. So this was their chance at redemption and uh, it didn't go too well, did it, Luis? No, they were, again, just really flat. It, it does mirror their, their poor form in the league this season. They haven't been brilliant, um, especially really this calendar year. Um, and it just seems like they couldn't get themselves motivated, which is strange for two big cup finals. And traditionally a club that has had a great deal of success in the Copa del Rey as well. It just, yeah, they never really got going. Uh, obviously, we saw again the brilliance of Lionel Messi, um, you know, unplayable on his day. And he's certainly done it enough to, to reflect it over the years for them to to resent him for it. Um, but yeah, I mean, Barcelona just looked a cut above and really quite comfortable in a way that they haven't really looked for a lot of the season. They just seemed like, um, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of an adject performance. I'm sure the Athletic fans were. Uh, very displeased with that um, and to, to throw away two cup finals like that is yeah very disappointing for them it's, it was a really interesting game bit and uh, not too much happened in the first half really it was nil nil at half time um, De Jong hit the post early in the game but other than that there weren't too many chances and then Barcelona had this this crazy streak in the second half they scored four goals in 12 minutes De Jong playing a big part but yeah as you say Messi like if you're going to look at one of the goals on YouTube, I think it's the is it? It's I think his fourth goal, uh, so his second goal, but the fourth goal for Barcelona. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it had if you count them, if you can be bothered to count them, I think it was 62 uninterrupted passes in the in the build up to that goal. Just this outstanding, isn't it? I mean, I I love those kind of goals. Like I think about the Cambiasso goal for Argentina at the 2006 World Cup. Um, that, that was maybe like just less than 30 passes, but 62 passes, like that is insane. Yeah, no, definitely. It was a return to that almost, that, that old Barcelona style of the tiki-taka and, you know, brought back memories of their dominance with, with Xavi and Iniesta and obviously Messi himself. But no, I mean, it wasn't really a contest. As you say, after those 12 minutes, that flurry of goals actually take it out of any team. But yeah, it just seemed like they, they weren't really equipped to, to provide a game plan to counter against Barcelona and counter against that passing, whether through pressing or kind of a lower block style where you counter. They just weren't prepared for any of it. And it just 
yeah, it, it all fell apart for them. And just if anyone wants some more statistics, uh, Goal reported in 2017 that uh, NASA Chadley goal scored against QPR previously held the record for the most passes before a goal. This was this had 48 uninterrupted Spurs passes before he scored against Queen's Park Rangers, whereas this had 62, as I just said. So if, if there is a record or a league table somewhere out there, then I believe this is the most uninterrupted passes before a goal. And wow. yeah, yeah. And Messi himself, he's now got 37 career honours. Uh, this puts him joint second as the second most decorated player of all time. Any guesses who the most decorated player of all time is? It's Danny Alves, I think. Yeah, it is Danny yeah. Alves. I was I was surprised. So Messi is five trophies behind Danny Alves. So yeah, like what a couple of players they've been. Yeah, he could probably catch him at this stage. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they're not looking at the table as well. They're not a million miles away from um, Atletico Madrid. So that's going to be a really good title race, isn't it? Yeah, it's really tightened up. Um, Atletico gave away some of their um, their advantage. Uh, Points advantage, and so yeah, it's really, really a free horse race there. Toss up. Yeah, no, that'll be a really good finish to see how that goes. I think even even uh, Sevilla in fourth, I've got a bit of a chance. They're only they're only six points behind, so it'll be exciting finish over in Spain. Okay, let's move on now then to the meatiest issue of the week. And it has to be the announcement that came on Sunday to interrupt pretty boring Man United versus Burnley match. And that was this this idea or proposal for the 2023 to 24 season of the European Super League. Uh, To give a bit of background, this is the idea that 12 clubs across England, Italy and Spain have agreed in principle to form a European Super League. Each team will receive $400 million or 290 million Great British pounds sterling for taking part. Uh, A 20 team league is envisioned, which would allow five clubs to qualify annually based on results from the previous season. The other 15 that don't have to qualify would be permanent members i.e. they would not face relegation at any point. It would run from August to May uh, with play beginning with two groups of 10, two leagues of 10. The top three of each group would qualify for the quarterfinals and then to make up the eighth of the quarterfinals, fourth and fifth would face a two-legged playoff to determine the remaining slots. So are you liking what you're hearing? Uh, in a word, no. <laughs> no, it's it's not quite wetting the appetite, I don't think. It's received a lot of strong backlash. 
Uh, it's taken over news news channels, not just sports news channels across the country. Um, Gary Neville was very crit critical on Sky Sports, asking the English FA to heavily penalise the teams that are involved. UEFA President Alexander Seferlin, hope I haven't butchered that, said that it was a spit in the face of all football lovers. And Ian Holloway had the best take of them all by saying it was an, in <laughs> an insult to the memory of Prince Philip. Um, <laughs> yeah, what, what, what else is there to say about this, eh? Oh, there's really there's so much you can say. I mean, you can come up with any, every conceivable take or angle on this. Um, as people have, have noted, it's really arguably the most momentous event um, in European football for, for many decades, if not possibly even in the history of the game as, as we know it as a, as a globalised or, or international force. But yeah, I think specifically going back to the, to the Zephyrin thing, again, just to add... In a little bit of colour and flavour there with Agnelli is that two years ago, Agnelli invited Zephyrin to be, uh, or godfather, to, to his own daughter. Oh, wow. Um, I, never, I never knew that. Yeah. So it's been revealed in kind of the, the Italian media that's the case, um, which adds an extra personal angle there. Uh, Zephyrin apparently had called Agnelli and he'd assured him they wouldn't be going ahead with anything like this and all, all the clubs were satisfied. And just a few hours later, he attempted to call him back and um, his phone was just turned off. Um, and so you can understand why he's coming out here and calling Agnelli a snake and all sorts, um, because it really is incredibly personal between the two of them. Yeah, so I've I've got uh, Seferin quoted as saying that he's never seen a person lie so many times when he talks about Agnelli. Um, and so Ag Agnelli as well, like he was the guy we talked about a few pods ago in support of the Swiss system, wasn't he, in the Champions League? Which, yeah. Which is obviously what Seferin wants. He wants the Champions League to remain the elite um, competition of European football. He obviously thought he had the backing of Agnelli. He doesn't now. Like Agnelli, was he the, the head of uh, the European Club Commission or something like that until Sunday? When he uh, he resigned from that post to obviously pursue this new Super League idea, it's, it's it's I just can't believe how brazen this this man is. Yeah, he's quickly staking a claim for uh, for overall supervillain of football. Um, it's quite impressive, <laughs> considering a lot of the other candidates as well. I guess he's replaced a uh, Sepp Blatter to some extent as the, the big <laughs> boss of evil. Yeah, it's, it's it is crazy. And so going when the the Super League for a lot of Sunday was sort of hearsay. You know, it was they brought it up on Sky, as I said, during the Man United Burnley game. We were waiting for an official letter or an official sort of press release of, of what they were saying or what how they were even going to try and spin this. You know, a lot of people already knowing that they did not want a part, did not want to be a part of this, like detesting us on every level. And then they bring out this weird press release. And they have the likes of um, Florentino Perez on it. They have the Glazers from Man United on it. It's just like, if, if you ever wanted this to sort of uh, succeed as an idea, to be, to be popular, to be wanted, like, uh, you just, you have no grasp of the tone, do you really? Like, the people who go to football, the people who enjoy football, they, they don't think that Florentino Perez knows what's best, to, best for football. Again, it's a who's who of um, just the, the worst people in football, the most brazenly open about their 
dislike and distaste of anything that doesn't lead to, to their personal or, or sort of their consortium or their club's financial enrichment. Um, and I think it's very notable that you have, in addition to those names, you had Krenke who came up in support of it as well, while um, the owners who have made almost a little bit more of an effort to appear respectable or kind of stay in the background a bit more, sort of like, so for example, John W. Henry, um, you've got Laporta at Barcelona, who's known for being kind of shrewd operator as well. He's kept his mouth shut. Um, you've got Mansur as well and Daniel Levy, who have quite noticeably just not come out and said anything at all because, I mean, quite frankly, they, they know this isn't popular. Um, I don't think they're under any illusions on that point. Um, and they obviously want to say, okay, if Perez and um, Agnelli and Blazer want to take the slack, then they're happy for them to do that. Um, I guess specifically on Florentino Perez himself, came out with some further statements. He was on the uh, popular Spanish football show El Chiringuito. Um, he was saying, well, basically just, just chatting a load of shit. Excuse uh, me for that. But I mean, he was talking about sort of young people these days not being as into football anymore in part because they didn't have a good attention span. Um, he was saying we should perhaps reduce the length of matches um, and focus more on kind of the shiny elements that, that all these kids will like. I mean, it's, it's just a, a ludicrous assertion. Um, and it, it comes from someone who clearly doesn't really like football that much. I mean, he's been involved in the game for how long, but does he, as we were saying with Agnelli um, in, in one of our previous episodes, um, he, he didn't seem to like football either. Um, so it just seems to be that trend. You've got these owners who, despite having all this involvement with the business of football, clearly have no actual understanding of what the game, the sport itself means to fans, um, who they refer to as legacy fans as well. There's a lot of talk about the use of that um, by these chairmen, by these owners, sort of disparaging traditional supporters. Again, a total disconnect between them and you know a match-going fan base. Uh, and apparently they want fans of the future to just, I guess, uh, watch highlights compilations and um, buy as much merchandise as humanly possible. Um, yeah, just reflect a, a total alienation there between the very top of the game uh, and the vast majority of supporters, really. And that's not saying, you know, anything about international domestic supporters. It's really applies to everyone as a whole. And I think anyone who's followed football for any reasonable length of time or has interest in the game can understand that this is um, completely cynical and wrong to say that uh, young supporters or supporters around the world not interested um, in the actual matches of football themselves, but instead just want to see highlight compilations. This is such a mad idea. I don't, I don't understand that at all. You know, when, but as we keep going back to it, but as we said on the previous pod, they were talking about ideas of, of offering subscriptions for the last 15 minutes of games and things like this. And it's, I just don't think they understand it at all. I'd love to know where these ideas have come from. And, and I can't help, I know we're in our 20s. I mean, are we, are we the people that they're talking about? Are we the ones <laughs> that are meant to have like no attention span? Um, I, I think as well, like it's easy to sort of see it as like, oh, you know, like it's Americans and like rich, uh, rich people who have no interest in football. They don't understand like football or soccer. 
as we as we do it's so much more to us to us Europeans almost and Agnelli like his family have been involved in Juventus I think since the 1920s and it's just like it's not just people coming in and you know thinking they can just like buy a club and make money off of it like he his family have a huge history with the biggest club in Italy and somehow he is still into all of these crazy ideas I, I don't understand that at all absolutely and as you say I mean I do think this project, I mean, unmistakably has connections to the United States, um, both through sort of financing and in the general idea was what it's trying to do. But yeah, as you say, it's um, it's not just that. It's um, it's just really a, the alienation between someone who's got billions and someone who doesn't. I think it is psychological because at that stage, you almost don't care about anything else and you can't care about anything else almost um I don't want to veer too much into that psychology but I think really when you're so far removed from what anyone ordinary could think even from what a millionaire could think that I know what perhaps an ordinary person would um you just start thinking in a completely different way I think and it just perhaps unmoors you from anything any kind of pleasures that that people would gain from watching the game um of football so yeah as you say that family has has a long history and a legacy of owning Juventus as well um but perhaps we're seeing with that this explosion uh of wealth um that these big clubs have that it it just really untethered them from any kind of link to the community or link to reality of football and I think definitely can be further explored as as a broader link to the idea of where capitalism is moving at the moment it's almost that last veneer is being removed. Um, so I would say it's sort of a mask off moment um, in terms of being compared, for example, to the election of Donald Trump. It's that final representation of, in that case, you know, a billionaire game show, uh, reality show host um, being elected. It's just the purest embodiment of US capitalism. Um, you can't almost go anywhere from there. That's it. It's all out in the open. There's no sense of illusion anymore. It's just reflecting in this case, we're the biggest clubs. We're not even going to try to really make much of a justification. As you say, the statement was sort of rushed out. A lot of owners weren't really even trying to explain themselves. It's just basically saying, we're the extremely wealthy. We don't care or even really understand what ordinary people think anymore. So we're just going to start this new league. If you don't like it, you know, there's a door. We don't, we're not bothered anymore. So in that sense, I think it's a progression because the Premier League, which is sort of the first stage of this perhaps uh, back in you know, 92, 93, when it was starting up, um, I think that reflects sort of neoliberalism in terms of the trickle down theory. So the whole idea was we'll create this new league that's a breakaway league, but we'll still maintain relegation and promotion from um, the football leagues. We will pass on that some of that money down, let that flow down. And, you know, it'll broadly benefit any of everyone, but of course it's going to benefit us more, but you're going to have to trust us on this one, guys, okay? And that reflects the kind of general ideals of neoliberalism, particularly in the 90s, uh, was the idea that, you know, we can, we can just share this wealth, obviously not in a way that's equitable anymore, um, but in a way that's going to trickle down to the smaller clubs and you'll be happy for your for the slot that we give you. And now it's almost completely removing that pretense, it's just saying, we're not really bothered about you anymore. We know what we have. 
we know the product that we have, we're just going to create this essentially closed shop. I mean, obviously you have the five teams that, that can qualify, um, but the idea is that this is a closed shop. And I assume that it would go more and more in that direction, even if this, this league developed uh, like that from the start, um, because the essential logic of it is creating an oligopoly, um, just all these clubs just playing each other incessantly, not doing much else and, and just reaping profits. So it's not really about league titles or competition wins anymore for them. It, it's a pure sort of capitalist logic here that uh, the profit's here to be made. We don't want to give it to anyone else. So why should we when we can start our own league? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of people on Twitter when they try and link it to what Sky did to football in the early 90s, as you were saying. A lot of people are like knocking these these comments down, you know, saying you're being too simplistic and it's and it's not the same. And and I accept that obviously it isn't the same. Um, they kept, they've obviously kept part of the pyramid to the extent that you can get relegated, even though you know the richest clubs can't get relegated because they are too rich. But uh, you know, it is definitely fair to say, isn't it, that without the Premier League breaking away as it did, that was sort of the first step to all of these ideas coming in. Like how that must have been the first step because it's just. It's the same in principle, a group of very rich elite clubs thinking that they can keep pushing and pushing for more money. Like I, I see this idea of the Super League. Some of the justification that the owners have given is because of COVID. You know, they have all these debts. Like we know that Barcelona is heavily in debt and around Madrid, a number of big clubs around Europe are. But every other football club is, you know, we, how many problems are there at grassroots football in, in the National League? Um, the things that have happened to Dulwich, the fines that they've been getting, it's, it's not going just too much of a global thing. Like, I, I, there's no justification whatsoever, is there, in saying that mega-rich Barcelona have to join the Super League because, you know, they haven't got two pennies rubbed together. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right in terms of the Premier League being the first step as well. And obviously the justification here of the pandemic too. Um I feel like we shouldn't see it as an inevitability, though. I think um, definitely from a historical perspective, it's not good to view these things as, um, you know, the Premier League happened, therefore this was always going to happen. Even though, obviously, there's been talk about this for quite a while, at least since 2009. But, you know, I think it's, uh, it's much more helpful to view it as this is an outcome that was always perhaps likely as a result of that, but we really could have done something to change this. There were opportunities um, for a more equitable share uh, from supporters in the game, perhaps, you know, with a different government in power or if the EU had perhaps made us more of a priority in certain areas, uh, who knows? But the fact remains um, that we've got to this point now, uh, as you said, the pandemic acting as a catalyst for these clubs to make a move. Um, I think there is a financial side and it is true that their accounts have been hit. Um, it's also, I think, the lack of fans in the stadium, which um, allows them to essentially do this no that they're not going to have a huge fan boycott or fans protesting in the stadiums because they're not allowed to be there. So it's a, it's a very convenient um, time for them to do this as well. And I think as it has done in other areas of society, the pandemic's brought to light um, this idea of, of the billionaires having this huge disconnect. Because for example, um, quite a number of stories about essentially billionaires and the richest people in the world have expanded their wealth dramatically during the course of the pandemic. Um, if we talk about the likes of, for example, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, um, while most people have, have suffered, um, they've in fact added tens of billions to their fortunes, um, which is remarkable when you think about it. And as I say, just highlights how much there is a disconnect even between 
the wealthy and the rich and people that perhaps a couple of million or so very comfortable, very well off, and someone who can just rack up billions uh, without a thought or a care in the world, but still wants more. Um, and I think here that we're showing that that's what these clubs are, are committed to. Obviously, they, they're not thinking about it in ideological terms, but in terms of the, the bottom line, that's what they're creating is this, this super this, uh, this super elite, which even goes beyond the wealthy clubs or the, the dominant clubs in Europe and just marks out a very select few of them uh, to be in that global level. So we have uh, 12 clubs that have signed up. It is the these big so-called big six in England, Man United, Chelsea, Spurs, Man City, Liverpool and Arsenal. Um, it's Barcelona, Real Madrid in Spain. And uh, is, Athlet- is Atletico included in that as well? Yeah. Yeah, Atletico as well, sorry. And then um, Milan, Inter and Juventus in Italy. So that was the 12. And as I said, there were going to be 15 permanent members. So I've not seen this anywhere, but do you, do you think it was they wanted, as their extra free to hit the 15, they wanted Bayern, Dortmund and PSG? And, you know, potentially because of obviously the rules in Germany about how many, uh, is it the 51% must be owned by fans? You know, they obviously turned the offer down. Like that's, that's something that's, you know, we should have implemented years ago, isn't it? The, the idea that fans have more of a say in how their clubs are run. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, actually Porto, well, the Porto president came out and said that they turned down an invitation to join. Um, whether that's accurate or whether he's sort of using it as an opportunity to say, look, we're one of the good guys, um, I don't know. I do think that um, they've actually come out and said that they haven't invited PSG. And I think that might actually be true um, because um, PSG has very specific reasons to stay loyal to UEFA. Uh, their chairman's on the board. There's a big Qatari contract uh, with UEFA as well, uh, which they don't want to jeopardise. And obviously they don't want to jeopardise their relationship with FIFA either, um, given that the World Cup is due to come out. Mm-hmm. I also think um, since this whole project is about making money, PSG, and to a lesser extent actually Man City, who I think are probably less enthusiastic about this project as well, they don't really need to make money. They've got all the money in the world. They're using these clubs to as we've discussed a bit in the past, to sports wash, to um, kind of launder their crimes of, of their regimes um, and, and to promote their popularity, you know, in Europe and beyond. So the purpose of PSG isn't to make money. It's designed to be a loss-making enterprise. Um, so they're not really interested in this. They want to use it to promote how good they are and how virtuous guitar is and buy some more of our shirts um, just so we can promote this particular brand. Um, and make ourselves seem more likable. And, you know, it's just a nice little plaything for, for a Sheik to have um, in his arsenal. So they don't really have any interest in this whatsoever because it doesn't suit their goals. They have a, a very different set of ambitions to, to these, particularly these American-owned clubs who very much are about the bottom line. Uh, look how much money the Blazers have sucked out of Manchester United over the last decade or more. Um, they're very much about wanting to extract all of the wealth they can from this team so I think, yeah, a completely different set of priorities there. And obviously, in regards to the fan ownership issue, I think that's key. Barcelona and Real Madrid have sort of a limited fan participation structure, the socios, but they generally just vote on who the president is, as the Barcelona fans did earlier uh, in the season, or last year, um, to, to elect Laporta again. 
So they don't have that same level of ownership and input as they do with the 50 plus one model in Germany. So I think, yeah, absolutely. It's key in why Bayern uh, and Dortmund are a lot more hesitant to sign up to this, are able to condemn it um, because they know that the fans themselves are not going to sign off the decision. And since they have a controlling stake, um, it would be extremely difficult for them to join in opposition to that. So yeah, it just highlights the importance ever more of that uh, that ownership that we discussed, you know, already uh, in previous pods. Um, but yeah, it, it's got to be the the way forward if we want to prevent things like this and also turn back the clock and see an end to to the domination of the biggest clubs as well as the financial powerhouses and the TV companies like like Sky and BT. It was interesting that the government actually came out and said something regarding that, didn't it? I think they were talking about proposals uh, really early, obviously, in the day, but they were talking about proposals of fans having having this 50 plus 1% thing. And it's insane to hear a Tory government talk about it like that. But the one of the funnier tweets was Oliver Dowden, the <laughs> culture and sports secretary, who a man who uh, I don't know how many football matches he's seen or been to in his life, but he made out that we currently have a system where the money does trickle down. Um, I know we've talked a little bit about how Sky, Sky's intervention in the early 90s, you know, it was, it was a step in this direction. Um, it, you know, football, football, this isn't just the death of football now, is it? Football's not good, regardless of the Super League. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he is right that it does trickle down, but trickle is very much the operative word here. I mean, it's you know, it's pennies compared to what you've got going on at the, the top level of the game. And yeah, I guess to expand further the idea of perhaps to have a slightly hopeful note of what we can do to actually change or end any of this, it's, it's all about ownership. Um, and it has to be about ownership, both in the wider economy, um, in terms of workers owning their businesses, and also specifically with the example of football, um, with fans owning the clubs and actually having a stake there. So I guess what people can do right now is not just to say, I'm going to support, stop supporting um, Liverpool, Manchester United or Spurs. Which I think it's right to do. And to be honest, I think that's very much the direction that I'm going in myself. Um, I don't think I have much interest, even if this doesn't go ahead um, to support a club um, which is willing to do that. Um, so I do think it is a step further than obviously the existing um financial crimes that the club has perpetrated against its supporters, for example, to, to introduce £77 tickets. But I think this is probably a step too far for a lot of people. I think the message is probably don't just go and support your local team or your non-league team, lower league team, but also see if they've got an existing ownership structure, supporters trust, perhaps join that, support that, uh, invest in the local teams, Perhaps if that's not in place, then see what you can do to organise uh, around unions or trust to try to create that sort of structure. That's the only way you have change in this in this industry. Um, anything else is just, um, you know, a temporary plaster or a measure over the top. Uh, we, we both know that the, the Tory government will cynically try to, um, you know, introduce some proposals around this um, to gain support because they know that this is a, a very unpopular move the Super League. Um, but I have no faith whatsoever that they'll actually introduce anything which will bring 
substantial fan ownership. I think it's fans themselves who have got to, to come together uh, and really change this. So I think, you know, instead of kind of feeling cynical about the whole situation, I do think we have to be kind of hopeful and say we can band together. We can either um, take over existing clubs or kind of put new structures together. I saw um, there was a recent article about um, Newcastle fans coming together and looking to create their own supporters trust now um, to hopefully get Mike Ashley out without having to rely on, you know, Saudi oil money. So it moves like that, absolutely the, the right step to take. Um, perhaps it's a bit too far gone for them, some of these super clubs, because it's also difficult for fans to be able to raise billions to be able to buy these owners out. Um, and maybe we have to think a little bit lower, um, but just do what we can and, and do what we can in our, in our own communities um, to try to change this, because um, I think it's just going to start relief how much we do need to change the structure of, of ownership in football, um, because it can't go on like this and retain you know, whatever scraps of dignity that the modern game has left. I think as well, like as, a, as someone who doesn't follow a top six or a European super club, you're sort of lulled into being, you know, shrugging your shoulders almost and thinking, let them go, like let them chase that money, let them just eat themselves almost because it doesn't really mean anything to me. And if you take six out of the Premier League, then Norwich are more likely to stay up every year. Um, but then there is other important things that, you know, we, you wouldn't have considered. Like you show me this article in The Big Issue uh, about fans supporting food banks and how important it has been having fans in grounds. I know we've gone a year without them now, but over the years, how, how important it has been for local charities, having fans going to games and stuff like that. So it's, it shouldn't just be a sort of selfish, like, oh, you know, like they're gone, like let them off. They're, they're, they can't help but be a degree of that. These charities, you know, they, they, need, they need the Premier League to stay together, would you say? They need, I guess, that um, definitely for the moment. And ideally, we would look at creating a new Premier League or a whole new league structure that, um, that prioritises, you know, and keeps the wealth really where it belongs, which is... Um, you know, with the fans and with community efforts, um, like donations to food banks. So obviously we hope that donations to food banks wouldn't be necessary. Um, but unfortunately, that, that is the society uh, that we live in at the moment. And I think, um, yeah, whatever can be done to, to maintain that wealth um, in the local communities. There's the example of um, the Spurs Stadium. So you have this, this gleaming new, I mean, really nice stadium we've, we've been together. Um, and it is, I mean, a brilliant, it's a beautiful stadium. It's a great fan experience inside. Um, but then you look at the surroundings in that area of London and, you know, it is a stark contrast. There's a lot of poverty in that area of London. And it just shows that clubs are not investing in their local communities in any meaningful sense. Perhaps they do a couple of things for PR. But if you look at the areas around, for example, local and Everton stadiums as well, notorious of being some of the poorest areas of Liverpool. So really what you need is fan-owned clubs, not just for the sake of the clubs themselves, but indeed of the communities which they are originally founded to serve uh, and work for too. So that's really the only way that you can maintain the wealth there in any consistent fashion. And yeah, absolutely, kind of what that big issue article highlighted um, was that we need fans going to the stadiums and supporting the communities but it shouldn't be about them 
being sort of shamed or, or sort of guilt trips into um, into continuing to to invest in tickets because otherwise it's going to negatively affect um, others. But instead, it should be that they should feel happy about perhaps spending some of their money and you know a much lower amount of money because quite frankly, there's no need for a for replica kit to cost ninety pounds either. But perhaps have all of that money that they do spend go into a local community run club that can then invest some of that money into the wider area and bring people in and create something that's, you know, as Barcelona would say, Mexican club, but in an actual sense that's meaningful for the community uh, and not just a PR slogan. But yeah, as you mentioned before, it's important as well, I think, for supporters of clubs, perhaps lower down the league structure or, or smaller clubs in the Premier League, not to get complacent too. Um, for example, I saw um, Steve Parrish coming on Sky to talk about um, all of this. And, you know, Jim Cowger quite rightly made the point that Parrish himself had, earlier on into the earlier days of the pandemic, had basically refused to send much help to the lower league teams because, you know, he, he sort of said, should a supermarket support their, uh, their local corner shops? Which shows, you know, again, the kind of cynicism of the man that he's now coming around and attacking the Super League. Obviously, it's a little bit different, but at the end of the day, it's the same governing logic that you're putting the money and your own interests above all else. And that's always going to happen. And these clubs are owned by, whether it's, a, you know, a wealthy local businessman or a ultra wealthy oil tycoon or you know american hedge fund owner um the only way that you're going to get the interest to align with the actual community and with, with clubs as a whole is fan ownership and you know um not to kind of bang the drum too much but it really is the only way that we can change these structures and that applies further down the leagues as well if you look at a club like portsmouth you know, a club that i have family connections to very fond of you know, they had the supporters just that came in and saved the club from the sort of financial mismanagement of a lot of these wealthy businessmen or even fraudsters who were just using the club as their plaything. But then now passed over to, to a consortium, which has a, as its head, um, Michael Eisner, who is linked to, to the Disney company. And you, know, you can understand for financial reasons why there's been kind of that push to do that and, and get that new sort of capital in there and invest in the team. I thought it was quite a sad thing to see overall um, because, you know, there was that opportunity there to create a fan-owned club, but with all the financial pressures and the competitive pressures of the lower leagues, they felt that it couldn't really be maintained to help get the club up to the divisions. They sort of made that choice to bring in that outside ownership as well. Not to say that they've been bad owners so far or anything, but um, that, I think that's beside the point. The whole point is that they shouldn't really be owning the club. It should be of the community you know, Portsmouth is a very working class uh, city as well. Um, and it should be something that could benefit the whole community and can be tied again to its roots, uh, as opposed to just existing as almost a floating uh, accumulation of capital, like, like the US sports franchises generally do. The fact that they're able to move around um, and basically bully cities into saying, uh, you know, finance this new stadium, give us tax breaks, otherwise we're going to leave and go to Las Vegas or Los Angeles. That's really something that we've managed to avoid in football so far. Perhaps uh, the notorious example of, of MK Dons um, is somewhat of an exception. But yeah, if you don't have that link 
and that link is further severed with the Super League. But if you don't have that, then what does the club mean anymore? It's just, as you could say, it's just a franchise. It's just a brand. It has no meaningful connection to, to the local community anymore. If you don't have that return of the fans actually having a stake and owning the club, then that, it will inevitably lead to that, uh, whether it's slowly jumping ahead, like the Super League idea. Interesting with Steve Parrish as well, because I actually caught him on Newsnight yesterday. And as you said, he, he was very staunchly against this Super League idea. But even when he was asked about fan ownership, he was obviously very like, oh, no, not not sure. Not sure we want that either. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, uh, I'm not sure what to make of him, really. The, these clubs need to let, take a look at themselves and they're very happy to sort of play the small fry in occasions like this. But at other times when clubs have been needing money, they've been very sure like that they are a big club and they deserve everything that they've got in terms of money they've deserved. Yeah, I mean, West Ham, I think, another sort of egregious example of this, kind of bullying the, the London, Great London Authority to kind of let them have the, uh, the London Stadium on favourable terms and sort of bringing it up. That's this whole arrival of West Ham as a huge club. You know, again, a club from, from very working class roots, uh, very working class area. Um, and, you know, if they had got the phone call from... Um, from Glazer or John Henry saying, you know, look, we want you to join us as well. I mean, there's no doubt whatsoever that they would have joined too. Um, so again, their interests are not aligned with the interests of the football fans as a whole. And that's not to say that we should kind of exclusively focus on that hypocrisy at the moment, because I do think you get sucked into that trap where you're sort of saying in cynical, oh, the Super League's no worse than what we have now, so it's just going to go ahead or whatever. Um, so I do think it is, as we've sort of talked through, something that is a step beyond and it's, it's significantly worse than what we have. And it really severs that link of competition uh, of any kind of re really rele relegation. And it's further severs the link between clubs and their communities and kind of pushes us more to that franchise model. So I don't think we should necessarily um, reject the support that we have at the moment from, for example, other club owners for, for getting rid of the Super League but we should also bear in mind that they're not going to be our long-term allies if we want to push forward any idea of fan ownership. So I think, you know, we, we have to pick and choose in terms of our battles here. And I think the first priority is seeing what we can do to, um, to end the scourge of the Super League. And then we can see um, perhaps as part of that push a broader movement to, uh, to establish joint ownership with supporters trust, another initiative to try to get us closer to you know, the, the German model and perhaps even beyond. The first contact was, for me, very impressive because I found um, persons, uh, I think, with the same mentality as I, as I have. They love football, as I love. Uh, they want to win like I want to win. We have top players. And... Um, I'm sorry, I'm a bit arrogant. We have a top manager. I'm a, I think I'm a special one. The second big news at the start of this week was the special one getting the axe from Tottenham Hotspur. They've been pretty poor ever since they looked like winning the league back in about October. It sort of lost the players, if he ever had the players. He sort of retreated into his classic Mourinho tactics of 
um, playing the most boring football possible. Whereas this time it didn't have that defensive solidarity. It didn't get the results. They were letting in stupid goals to the likes of Newcastle. And in my opinion, I think this was something that we all, we all saw coming. What do you think? Yeah, I think the writing was on the wall for a while uh, with this one. And I wonder if Mourinho would try to claim that he was kind of forced out or that he resigned over the Super League issue. That might be a, quite a smart PR move for him to do that. But anyway, I think we could tell that um, their football wasn't very good of late. As you say, with Mourinho, you at least expect to, to have defensive solidity and to, to go through in all the cup competitions that you're in and to maintain a good level of performance throughout and to the consistency there as well. And apart from getting to the final of the League Cup, they haven't really shown any of that. So yeah, freezing out Dele Alli, obviously a frustrating player, but still a very talented player. Given you know some of the limitations uh, in the squad going forward this season, and sort of that heavy reliance on on Kane uh, for a lot of it, seems seems like an odd decision to, to freeze out one of your best attacking players as well. And generally, defensively, he seems to have some sort of chopping and changing in terms of what he considered to be his best defenders. A lot of reliance on Eric Dyer, which strikes me as Odd. Perhaps that's because Dyer speaks Portuguese as well, and he sees him as sort of a, a dependable player in the dressing room. And but quite frankly, Eric Dyer is, is not good enough to to linchpin a defence um, at the very top level. In general, I think he just works better in midfield. I don't think he's really a centre back at all. Yeah, and then you had um, kind of a Tongan getting frozen out a lot last season. Um, so you generally had a few kind of squad issues. And there was some investment put in. You have Gareth Bale coming in as well. But again, he's kind of shown fits and starts. I mean, you're not really trusting him to have an extended run as a starter, it seems. So it all seems like a bit of a mishmash and they were trying to recapture the glory of some of Mourinho's past achievements. And maybe he's just not there anymore. Maybe the structure's not there for him to succeed at Spurs. Um, but either way, yeah, not an unsurprising end. It's sad. I feel, I feel like for me, getting into football probably when I was about eight or nine, say, he he was the man that Port owned and he came into Chelsea and he won Chelsea their first title in 50 years. And they, they obviously did it twice in a row. Um, he was just unbelievable. And he was so new and so confident, the special one, all of these little things. Over the years, he has sort of become, he's become a bit of a dark cloud really, isn't he? He's not, He's not exactly a fun person in press conferences. He He's always been very sure of himself, and he still is, even up to, was it last weekend when he was saying, uh, same coach, different players, in terms of why he's gone downhill so much. I'm just not sure where he'll pop up again next, really. I thought it was a strange appointment in the first place at Spurs. I feel like they wanted to, to get rid of Pochettino. They wanted to sort of regenerate and, and feel like things were changing after the Champions League final defeat but I don't know how many people would have wanted Mourinho in the first place. Yeah, I think the logic behind it was, you know, Mourinho will win us a trophy. Um, so it's very interesting to see how it's all gone wrong because they sacked him before a final in a trophy where they, where they could win that and that he's got them to. Uh, but yeah, as you say, it's, it's not really a case where he seems to have improved anyone. Um, and kind of the players who have been success stories, as you say, Hoybjerg, um, perhaps you could say Bergwijn, who's, been good but again in sort of fits and starts a little bit but these are kind of players who have come in he hasn't really improved the existing players at the squad 
he has got some buy-in, I think, from the likes of Harry Kane, who I think, you know, has continued to perform well. But yeah, perhaps not from the overall team. I think you've got uh, Ryan Mason coming in now, which is interesting as head coach for the rest of the season. I think unsurprising that they've chosen someone who's got history at the club that's kind of lead them through and probably has a, a better relationship with the players um, just to smooth things over a little bit. But yeah, it is, as you said, uh, going back a little bit to, to what you're saying about um, Mourinho emerging onto the scene, obviously that dramatic uh, Champions League victory with Porto. Still, you know, one of the greatest achievements really over the last couple of decades of any manager, um, as well as those tremendous title wins at Chelsea. He was really the special one. He was really, you know, at that stage, probably the best manager in the world. Continued great success, obviously, at Inter as well uh, with that treble. So I think it's just inevitable that every manager is going to drop off to a certain extent. And perhaps we see him sort of drift into a role as Portuguese manager or, or something similar to that. I think perhaps his ego won't let him admit that he's not at the very top level of the game anymore. But I think the results uh, and the performances over the last five years, at least, uh, have shown us that um, he's probably just not at that level anymore. And that's perfectly fine, to be honest, because he's at the top level of the game for, for quite a while and certainly longer than the vast majority of managers will ever be. At some point, you just got to accept that perhaps you're a little bit behind the times and whether he tries to completely revamp his style. I don't think he's capable of doing that personally um, because, again, of his ego. But maybe he just has to accept that he's going to take on a slightly lower profile role and still be able to get something out of the players um, and still be able to get buy-in. Because obviously, you know, he's still a very intelligent football man. He knows the game. Got great success. He will still command respect if he walks into, for example, you know, the dressing room of the Portuguese national team or even say goes back to Porto or something similar like that. But yeah, he might have just had to accept that that is his future to a certain degree. You've done a lot of great things, but you're a very old man now, and old people are useless. It's a form of abuse. Okay, at the end of another episode. Thank you for coming on, Luis. Uh, thanks, Tom. Pleasure as usual. Yeah, that was good fun. And thank you to everybody who listened. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. <laughs>